0: Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we kick off the new year, we invite you to tune into our current series, The Forgotten Virtue, Learning to Love Again, where we'll discover how God defines love, Christ personifies love, and the Spirit empowers us to love one another. Together, we'll experience healing and hope in the love God designed for us, a love we carry through every season of life. 1 John 3, verse 11 let us not love in word or talk but in deed and in truth the word of the Lord. This text begins by calling us to love one another and ends by telling us that that love must be indeed and in truth. It must be demonstrated in deed and in truth. Missionaries like Kim go to countries like Liberia into conditions that most of us run away from because of love. Love that must be shown, demonstrated in deed and in truth. And so how does John in this text get get us there? He does it by showing us this contrast between two people, Cain and Jesus. So we already had an introduction with Kim's word, although it was more like a sermon and a half, wasn't it? Just exploding with faith and with fire. And, um, And that's my desire for us, that we would explode with faith and with fire. We need to be praying to the Lord to do that in us, to do that through us. So let's dive right in. First, hate takes. Let's look at Cain. In verse 11, John says, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. This series, Forgotten Virtue, Learning to Love Again, aims at increasing our understanding of God's love, how he defines and expresses his love to us so that we would then grow into people who rightly define and express love to others. Specifically, to the people of God, the first thing that John does here is he takes us back to the beginning of brotherhood, but also to the beginning of hatred. He says in verse twelve, "We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother." There are few events in Scripture as dark as the account of Cain's murder of his brother, following God's um, or following. Adam and Eve's rebellion against God, and God's actions of both judgment and grace toward them, one of those actions of grace was that he made them parents. He allowed them to become parents. Eve is still the mother of all the living. It's an amazing thing. And so after they are cast out of the garden, Eve gives birth to Cain. Now, the first two things that we learn about Cain are his name and what it means. That's one. His name means gotten, because when she gave birth to Cain, Eve said, with the help of the Lord, I have gotten a man. I mean, it's a wild thing. Just think about this. This is the first time this happens, that another human being will come from the body of a woman. It's incredible. And so we get Cain's name and what it means. But then what's the second thing that we know about Cain? Now, let's think about this. When you meet someone new, the first thing you need to know is their name. Otherwise, communi- otherwise communicating with them is going to be very hard. Hi, I'm a, per- I'm a person and you're speaking to that person. That doesn't work. If you go to Uh, You know, so you're going to have to know the person's names to be able to talk to them. But then what's the second thing? The second thing is often telling about our context and why that person has come into our lives. If you're at a hospital and a woman in a white coat comes to you, she's probably going to say something like, Hi, I'm Dr. Stevens. I'm going to be your doctor. So now you have the name and why she's there. Or if you're at a family gathering and it's large and there's a lot of people you don't know and someone you don't know comes to you, they're probably going to say something to you like, hi, I'm Jim, I'm your Aunt Betty's coworker." So now you're like, okay, I, I can situate this. Well, the, the second thing that we learn about Cain right after his name is that he becomes a brother. He becomes a brother. In Genesis 4, 2 We read, and again, she, Eve, bore his brother Abel. The writer could have said, and again, she bore Abel. But no, the writer says, she bore Cain's brother Abel. This is the beginning of brotherhood. This is a new development in the history of humankind. Abel made Cain a brother. The word brother comes up seven times in this short passage in Genesis, highlighting the centrality of the theme of the reality of brotherhood. It's a good thing. It's momentous, but it quickly descends into a funeral because Cain can't stand his brother. Listen to the emphasis on brother in this passage in Genesis. In Genesis 4, 2, she bore his brother Abel. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Verse 9, the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother? Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Verse 10, the Lord said, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. What a tragedy. God gave Cain, Abel as a brother, and to humanity the gift of brotherhood. But from the very beginning and ever since, we've found it easier to care for ourselves than for our brothers and sisters of the human race. Now, why did Cain kill his brother? John tells us, look at the middle of verse 12. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Now, we're all familiar with the phenomenon of the teacher's pet, right? And I'm sure you can all remember that. Put yourself back in the seventh grade, that awkward season of life, And just think about this, right? Uh, The teacher begins to praise Susie Johnson because she's precocious and respectful and always gets straight A's. Now, what was the feeling Right As the teacher's praising Susie, what's the feeling that everyone else began to have? Envy, envy, wanting the attention Susie got and resenting her for it. Everyone starts hating on Susie, but she's done nothing wrong. Abel had done nothing wrong, but Cain couldn't stand the attention that God was giving him. And so he becomes angry and depressed. And God warns him, But his anger is going to very bad places. But Cain does not heed God's warning. And so he goes out to the field, takes his brother, and kills him. Now in verse 13, John says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. What's the connection? He's just been telling us to not be like Cain who killed his brother. Then he says, Don't be surprised if the world hates you. What's the connection? Well, remember that for John, the world is... The, the, the system, the virus that has infected everything that is good in the world. Is the world covered by sin? And so when John's speaking about the world hating us, What he means is that the world does not know god and is opposed to god and like cain the world will not receive the disciples of jesus now that should not be surprising to us john is telling them don't be surprised by this because jesus told us as much in john 15 he says if the world hates you know that it has hated me before it hated you you stand for holiness the world does not You stand for truth, the world does not. You stand for forgiveness and grace, the world does not. Now listen, there are times that the world does not like the church because we lack humility and a sacrificial posture. But what John is saying is that even if, or even when, we are as humble as we can be and as sacrificial as we can be, the world will still not like us. Why? Because we stand with Christ. But the other connection that John makes here for us is that when we're on the receiving end of hate, it's gonna be hard to love. Hard to love. I mean, just you tell me which one is easier. If you go to work for a new company where the culture is toxic, but you come in there as an agent of peace, or if you go to work for a happy place, right? You see, Jesus came to a rebel planet, and he sends us out into the world as sheep among wolves. So we have to, we have to become tougher. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I told you two weeks ago that if we're gonna be able to hear John well, we have to have very clearly the distinction between cause and effect. What is the cause of something happening? What's the effect that that thing has happened? When Anna and I were falling in love, you know, at one point I said to her, you look, Great in blue. Well, guess what? She started wearing a whole lot of blue. What was the cause? My statement, you look great in blue. What was the effect? A blue wardrobe, you know? So we need to be very clear on this because John constantly goes back to the effect, to the evidence that something happened prior to that. And so here he says, What is the cause? The cause is that we have crossed, we've crossed over from death to life. That's the cause. He says we know that we have crossed over from death to life. Now in John 5:24 there's a great scripture, it's a great verse from Jesus. Jesus says, truly truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. I love this verse because sometimes we think that after we die our eternal life begins. Did you know that's not true? John says, whoever hears his word, Christ's word. Well, actually, Jesus says this through John. Whoever hears his word and believes him who sent him, that God the Father sent him, has eternal life. The moment you believe that, you cross over from death to life. Isn't that amazing? You could have been sitting right there where you are right now, not doing a thing, and your spiritual eternal life begins. And then Jesus goes on, he, this person that has just crossed over, uh, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And so that's the cause that we believe that God sent Jesus. We hear that word and we believe it. That's the cause. That's what makes us cross over from death to life. Now, what's the effect? In fact, John says, is we love the brotherhood. So he says, we know that we have crossed over from death to life because we love the brotherhood. So many people get this mixed up. I hear it all the time. People say things like, well, I know that I'm right with God because I'm a good person, because I love people. no, no. That will never make you right with God. What makes us right with God is that we hear the word of Christ and we believe that God sent him for us to save us. That faith in God's grace is what makes us cross over from death to life. And then the evidence that that has actually happened to you, to us, is how deeply, how well we love others. John says that everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Now, what does he mean? What does that mean? Remember that in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says that murder is liable to the judgment. But he says, and so is anger against your brother. Anger is murder in embryonic form. Hatred is is murder in embryonic form. There's a commentator that defines hatred this way he says hatred is the wish that the one that the other person was not there have you ever felt like your life would be better if this other person was not there they didn't exist They'll you feel like oh man if this person was just to die whew, my life would just be so much easier better hatred is the wish that the other person was not there the refusal to recognize their rights as a person the longing that they might be dead listen our country is in a very perilous place because there are many people who are believing that the country would be better off without the people in the other political party that's hatred at work we know where that leads nowhere good hatred takes, hate takes. Cain took his brother Abel's life. When Israel is asking for a king, their first king in first Samuel, Samuel warns them that this king is going to take, take, take from them. He tells them he's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to take the best of your fields, the best of your harvest, the best of your flocks. He's going to take your Servants, he's gonna take your young men. He's just gonna take, take, take. That's what Saul did because he was wicked. There was no love in his heart. Hate takes. And so then John begins to move us now from the hatred of Cain to the love of Christ, because that's where he's taking us. He's saying to us, follow Christ, not Cain. Check your anger, check your love. Are there any people that you feel like, oh man, my life, our country, the world would be better off if they did not exist? This is what fuels hatred around the world. And it can be right within our homes. And so John starts taking us now to Jesus, whose posture of heart was not one to take, but to give, to serve because love serves. And that's our final point. Look at verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So now John gets us thinking about Jesus, who's the one who taught him everything good he knows. John had been following Jesus for 50, 60 years at this point, and it had been transformative for him. The grace of Christ had transformed him. John is known as the apostle of love. He writes about love more than any other biblical writer in his gospel, in these letters. He just keeps coming back to this. He's this old man by the time he's writing these letters, and he comes back to the theme of love again and again. But before John was the apostle of love, he was a son of thunder. That's the name Jesus gave him, him and his brother James, sons of thunder. That was not the name that John's homies teased him with. No, the Lord, the Lord gave him this name, sons of thunder. Why, you ask? Because it appears that there was this fiery, militant streak in them. There's this episode in Luke's gospel in chapter 9 where Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem. And uh, as he's heading toward Jerusalem, he passes by this Samaritan village. And the Samaritan village does not receive Jesus or the apostles because precisely because they were on their way to Jerusalem, Jerusalem being the epicenter of Judaism. And Jews and Samaritans did not have amicable relationships. And so they do not receive Jesus. But then the way that John and James react to this is by asking the Lord, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? They want to burn the village down. Of course, Jesus turns around and rebukes them. But you can just see Jesus' consternation is like, are you kidding me? Is this how you intend to use my power? Have you learned nothing from me? That was John. John. Son of thunder, 50, 60 years before. Now he's changed. Now he's different. He's the apostle of love. And so as he's writing down to us, he says, and by this we know love. And you can just see him drifting to the Lord, his mind drifting off to to the cross, to everything he saw in Jesus' life. And so he says, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. That Jesus laid down his life for us. Do you know how unusual that is? We hear that all the time. But it's so unusual. In a kingdom, others die for the king. Others die to preserve the king's life. Not this king. Not in this kingdom. This king, God's son, dies to preserve our lives. He dies. He gives his life to transfer us from the domain of darkness into life eternal. And so John says, this is how we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And he goes on, and that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's how we know love. It's, it's, it's two-pronged. It's Christ laying down his life for us, and we laying down our lives for the brotherhood. Now, is he calling us to be martyrs? Well, that's not out of the question for some of them and for some Christians throughout history, but, but not for most. But what he says next applies to all of us. He says, if anyone has the world's goods, we talked, I think two weeks ago, about how we all here have the world's goods. He says, if we have the world's goods and we see a brother in need and we close our heart against him, how, John asks, how can we say that the love of God abides in us? That word for closing our heart is the same word that is used a few times in the Gospels to refer to Jesus' compassion. So, John is saying, How can we close our heart? How how can we close our compassion toward others? In Matthew 15, when Jesus feeds the 4,000, what Jesus says to the disciples is, I have compassion. For these people, they've been with me for three days and have had nothing to eat. I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint along the way. What prompted him to feed them was what? His compassion. Then later on, there's these two blind men that come up to him and they want their sight restored. And Matthew tells us, Jesus, in compassion, in pity, touched their eyes and their sight was restored right away and they followed him. But do you see? This is so important, you guys. Jesus didn't just have power, power to display. He had so much power, he never showed. It's amazing, he didn't just have power, he was filled with compassion. His power was fueled by his compassion. It was out of compassion that he acted, and that he acted in power. You see, sin is the desire for power, not birthed in compassion. I love what we see here. What Jesus is teaching us and what John is underscoring in his letter that there that we can go through life with one of two postures, closing our hearts to the needs around us or filled with compassion. I just love how the Lord says, "I'm unwilling. I'm unwilling to send them away hungry." He says, "I'm unwilling to send them away empty." Could you imagine how different the world would be if that was our posture, the posture that we go through life with? I'm unwilling to let them suffer and do nothing. I feel like my whole life of walking with God is God just prying open my cold, callous heart, my selfish heart. And I mean prying it like with an industrial strength pry bar. You know, it's just like... Opening it, I mean, don't you feel it in yourself? Don't you wish that our posture was, I'm unwilling? You see, Jesus is unwilling to leave us where we are, to send us away empty. He's unwilling to leave us in our grief. When we lose, when we lose someone, when we lose something, he's unwilling to leave us there, so he comes to comfort. He's unwilling to leave us in our shame or guilt, in our anger, in our hatred, in our lust. He will not leave us there. And so he comes after us through so many means to take us out of that plight, out of that place. He is unwilling. And imagine how different life would be if we adopted his posture and said, I'm unwilling to let people suffer and do nothing. It's amazing. I made an appeal to you two weeks ago for us to pray and to fast. That God in his good timing and wisdom would bring back together and safely this whole church body. We talked last week about our groups and some of the joy of being known and being involved and holding hands with others as they go through life and through loss and disappointment. This is the brotherhood. This is what Genesis 4 was emphasizing and 1 John emphasizes again. That this is how we know that we cross over from death to life because we love one another, because we love the body of Christ. As we love the body of Christ, our love for the world grows. Our love for the nations grows. Are you keeping to yourself? Are you known? Do you know people so when they're hurting, they can call you? They can call you because you have an audience, because you have a place of trust, you've gained a place of trust. Because when we don't know anyone, no one's going to call. No one's going to call because we haven't gained trust. It's very difficult to enter into people's lives when they're going through something hard, which is why we build when life is just going so that we're able to come in and minister the grace of Christ to one another. But ask yourself, if, if you would say this is your church family, are you keeping to yourself? Because if you're keeping to yourself, you're not loving the brotherhood. And so you need to really ask yourself, have I crossed over from death to life? Because John says, hey, that's the evidence that you love the brotherhood. That's the evidence that you've crossed over. So we've talked about our Sunday gathering, we've talked about our live groups. Today I want to talk about the third thing that defines us as a church family and that is serving, serving. John says that our love should not be shown just in word or talk but in deed and in truth. You know when we talk about serving we're bringing out the priestly function of the church. We are a royal priesthood, we are a kingdom of priests by which God means that we represent him to the world by our witness and our love, indeed and in truth. And so we love, we serve our communities, and we share, we bring the gospel globally and locally. It's why we do things like the Warming Center. You know, you guys have responded so well to the Warming Center. There's been such an outpouring of resources and food and help you know, so many of you, men and women, volunteering for the overnight shift, you know, or in the evening, throughout the day. It's big. You know, we double what we did last year, and it takes a lot. And we've been pro- providing some basic needs, food, shelter, warmth, safety. So crucial. Put yourself in their place. But we've done more than that. So many of you have engaged in conversations with them is amazing just listening to their live story listening to their pain validating their pain and their dignity you know a brother from my group came and uh, volunteered a week ago or so and and he was just sharing with us how how much that did for him like he came to serve but he ended up li- living fuller than he came in because as he was talking with some of them they were just sharing what god's been doing in their lives and it just blew him away But you know, it's taken courage. It's taken courage for us to do this, especially in this pandemic year, because it would have been easy to hide, to run away, to say, I gotta defend, I gotta protect my life at all costs, sorry. Let's talk next year. That's not love, the need is now. And so you guys have valiantly stepped up and allowed us, us, as a church body to do this. And there's great things happening in the lives of our homeless neighbors and friends. You know, a number of them have found permanent housing. Some of them have found employment. Some of them have reconciled with their family and moved back in. Inch by inch, we stand for justice. You know, tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, who famously said, hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Next week, we'll talk about the sanctity of life and what we're doing for that but we are all aware that this has been a tough year for our nation as far as race relations. And so we need to constantly be asking ourselves, am I opening, how am I opening my heart to those who have less of a voice than I do? How am I using my resources, intellectual and educational and relational and spiritual and financial? How am I using my resources? That's power. When we talk about having power, that's what we mean. We mean resources. How am I using my resources to take up the cause of justice? You know, there's an insert that you got in your bulletin, or you can get one in the lobby, that gives you a number of ideas of how you can take up the cause of justice. And I would invite you to do that. We're going to keep building and strengthening our relationships with local organizations that are all about this, taking up the cause of justice. You can see a number of ideas here. Volunteering at the Dream Center or helping victims and survivors of human trafficking or, or, or prisoners, you know, bringing uh, truth to, to people in prison and on and on. I would invite you to read this, to pray, to see how the Lord wants you to be involved. Don't just wait for us you do it, you explode with fire, with faith, so that your power, your resources fueled by your compassion will flow to the many. It's what Christian maturity is about. The more God pours into you, the more he's able to make the, uh, withdrawals. He's depositing, depositing, depositing. He's looking to withdraw, to make withdrawals, bring out from you. Are you just keeping it all bottled up? Or are you allowing him? You're saying, yes, Lord, here am I, send me. We're also wanting to do more with our global partners. Yes, we send money and you guys are faithful, so faithful in that, but we want to do more. Last year when we came back from Thailand, we had all this energy and all this desire to do all these different things, start doing that and then COVID hit. But we want to pick that up. We were talking to our missions department because we want to do more. For now I encourage you to pray for our partners. Pray for Kim and his team in Liberia. Pray for Thailand and India and Rome and Quebec. We need to be praying. It needs to break our hearts that three billion people have not heard the name of Christ. It's got to do something to us. And from right here, from right where we are, we can do many things. The world is very connected now. We can do so much. Maybe the Lord will send you to Liberia Don't block that thought too fast out of your mind. Don't close your heart. God did not give you as much as he has and he has given us so much just so that our lives could be rich and awesome and comfortable and padded. Let him make withdrawals. Ask him to pour, pour, pour more into you. So that it more, more, more can come out. Oh, the riches that are bottled up right here. They need to be going out, they need to be exploding. And I do believe they are and will be an in increasing measure. So we live to serve. The three things that we are about as a church family our Sunday gathering. We know how precious this is to us. Our live groups as we live out the, f- the mission together and serving. And by serving, it's very important that we always define it as having two things. Serving the physical, material needs of those around us and globally and serving them by giving them the truth of Christ. That in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself. Not counting our trespasses against us. That's how we serve. That's what our witness to the world is. And so let's open our heart to the needs of the world without hesitation, with full assurance of faith. Let's be unwilling to let people suffer and do nothing. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you. Thank you for this word. Thank you for John. Thank you for First John and how uh, so many of us and hopefully all of us are just enjoying this letter. God, you speak to us with such power. You speak to us, Lord, right to our need where we need you. Lord, thank you. Father, hatred was born right there when brotherhood was born. How tragic, how sad that you gave Cain the gift of brotherhood. You gave him a brother and he killed him. And yet, Father, we are so blind to our own murderous anger. Thank you, Jesus, for making the connection obvious for us. That our anger toward those in that political party, toward those in that nation, of that ethnicity, of that orientation, of that ideology, of that gender, whatever it may be, that our anger is murder in embryonic form. Father, I pray that you would purge us from it. I pray, Lord, that you would give us great repentance. I pray that we would come to you and ask you to drive it out of us, that we would recognize that it is of the evil one as it was in Cain that we would become people who love, that we would demonstrate that, yes, we have crossed over from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters in Christ and we love those who are perishing. We love you, God. We trust you. We know that Jesus is our all, our everything, all we have. In his name and for his glory we pray. Amen.